Welcome back to the Made for TV Mayhem show. I think it's been a little while. That is not what I intended. Um, if you're listening to this way off in the future, uh, we are in the middle of a pandemic. And at the beginning of the pandemic, when we thought that um, the world would just kind of shut down for a couple of weeks, way back in March, which felt like 10 years ago now, we're in July now, um, we were like, we're going to do mini-sodes, and we're going to do episodes, and we're going to have so much fun. And then... Um, that's not how it ended up being. And and a lot of that's my fault. So I need to apologize. There's a lot of stuff happening here. I think everybody's been affected by the pandemic in one way or another, but I don't want to make this a downer. I just want to explain that um, I've sort of been MIA for a while in that way, but I'm hoping that this episode, which is a very special mini-sode, a little bit um, of a divergence for us. And I'll talk about that in a second. I'm kind of hoping you guys um, enjoy it and let us know if you do. I'll let you know our contact information at the end. Um, because I think we're going to try to do other episodes like this. Uh, but first, let me introduce everybody, and then we'll work our way into the topic of the evening. So, hey, Dan, what's up? I'm uh, I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, as as you said, um, it's it's been a little rough. I sometimes feel quite a bit like a, uh, well, I'm not going to say because we haven't said the topic of the episode yet. But I feel a lot like oh. one of <laughs> one of the lead characters, one of the lead gentlemen in the episode. I, and so um. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's. Um, I'm happy I'm here now. I always like doing these, so so I'm I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. I think this should be a lot of fun. And uh, I have sort of talked to you through email, but somebody I haven't kept in as much touch with, and I regret, is Nate. Hey, Nate, what's up? Hey, uh, not much. You know, just powering through the year <laughs> 2020. Yeah, it's kind of hard to power through it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been really rough. It's kind of it's kind of taken away every piece of goodwill I have. So this will be the angry cast. I'm kidding. It's not the angry cast. We're actually here to celebrate something that somebody else has celebrated. So why don't I just get into the topic at hand? So we're tonight talking about a theatrical film that came out last year called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You've probably heard of it. It was directed by Quentin Tarantino. Um, I saw it when it came out. I think these are first-time views for Dan and Nate. Is that right? Yes. 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 Okay, and the reason why I brought them here and picked this topic is because it's a movie that's actually, I think, really about how wonderful television was in the late 60s into the early 70s. And uh, I'm going to sort of talk about that here in my little introduction. So uh, I just thought it would be really fun. It's something that's been on my mind since I saw the movie when it originally came out last year. And I thought about writing an article about it, but I kind of ran. I didn't really have time to do that with all the stuff that I've been picking up as freelance work. And I thought, you know what? I really want to do this. And it'd be great to actually have a conversation with people about it instead of me just spouting out crap that I saw in the movie. Um, And so 
let me just give you a little bit of a breakdown of the film, a very, very like three sentence breakdown, and then tell you exactly why I chose this topic. And then we will talk about the movie as a whole. And then um, the parts that I think really represent what I think Tarantino was trying to say, say about television in 1969. So the INUV synopsis is very brief. It just says a faded television actor and a stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969, Los Angeles. That's somewhat accurate, but, um, Here's my little two-sentence breakdown of it. So it's it's bigger than that, obviously. Once Upon a Time is about the friendship between Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, and how their lives intersect with both Sharon Tate and the Manson family in 1969, which is the year that Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family in real life. So most of the press, when the film came out, really focused on Sharon Tate, and um, the opinions were really divisive. Uh, and I guess that's always the way it is with Quentin Tarantino movies. Um, but even just on my own Facebook, when I saw the movie, a lot of different people came in and said different things about it. Some people said things that weren't directed at me where they just made posts about the film. A lot of them were really angry about certain elements of it, um, mostly regarding Sharon Tate. We may or may not talk about that. I don't know if that's our focus tonight. Well, I think she's a main thread of it. And I think the film has so many, many threads. It's also really not so much about the golden age of Hollywood, but I think it's more so about the golden age of television. And so where you might say Jackie Brown is a love letter to Pam Greer, which it completely is, uh, I think you might say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a love letter to television in the late 1960s. He treats television as its own form of cinema. And I might say that a couple times during this conversation because that's sort of my hypothesis uh, for putting this podcast together. I should say inspiration. That's my hypothesis and the inspiration. So, of course, uh, I guess most listeners would know that the late 60s and well into the 70s and maybe even a little beyond, uh, we only had three major networks. So everyone watched TV and they pretty much watched the same shows every night. Um, and we're talking millions and millions of people tuned into the exact same programming. So to me, Rick Dalton is not just a protagonist. He's also a character that everyone recognizes for the role he played on this fictional television series Tarantino created called Bounty Law. When I watched this movie, being the TV person I am, or I should say the classic TV person I am, I find that there's a gazillion Easter eggs. And so I know the show focuses on TV movies. They don't really do TV movies in this at all. But I thought we could use this as a venue, right, to discuss what I think Tarantino was doing with um, trying to capture the history of television. So I guess you may know that I love the film, and so I'll talk about it last. I just want to get my uh, partner's thoughts on this film. Um, now, th- I don't know what Nate thought of it, so let me start with him. Nate, what did you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Um, well, I'll start off by saying that um, I I actually am, am a fan of Tarantino's work. I like um, you know all the Tarantino films I've seen, honestly. I was a little worried about this one in the beginning. I, I don't know, like the, the very beginning, uh, I was it was taking a little few minutes to kind of grab me, but um, eventually it did. It, um, I kind of got that hook that kind of hooks you in and makes you want to know what's going to happen. I mean, I'm not spoiling anything, but just to say that um, the last 20 minutes are spectacular. Yes. I mean, I was just sitting there with my jaw, like, hitting the floor, like, what is going on here? But it's 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 done in such a great way. And, uh, you know, obviously the acting is incredible. You know, by Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio do uh, excellent jobs, and there's actually just so many like well-known actors in this movie, even in just you know kind of smaller roles. Um, it was really fun to watch everybody, um, you know, in, in these roles. 
but yeah, I, I ended up liking it um, uh, a lot more than I actually thought I was going to, to be honest. I don't know why I was so hesitant with this movie um, to, to actually finally watch it. So I'm glad you picked it because I don't know if I would have watched it otherwise, even though I'm a fan of Tarantino. I don't know why this one just wasn't in my radar. Well, I'll tell you, um, we may or may not talk about the ending. And if you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I, I suggest maybe we might spoil it. I'm not sure yet, but uh, it's something you should see. If you don't know anything about the last 20 minutes, you need to go in blind to fully oh, yes. cap, yeah, get everything that's going to happen. But one of the things, oh, by the way, I think I said this on my last podcast. I have pet rats. I think I can hear them. So I apologize if you hear them running around in the background. My, the cage is right near me. But one of the things that kind of, had me hesitant. I did see it when it came out because it just looks so amazing. But the fact that it was based off the murder of Sharon Tate, I thought, right, that it, w- it was maybe going to be difficult. And as it got closer and closer to the end of the film, I thought I was going to have to leave the theater because I'd become so invested in everybody. And I wasn't really sure what Tarantino was going to do. I don't know if that's one of the reasons why he held off on it, Nate. I mean, yeah, that and that, that may be uh, one reason behind it is that I will watch stuff like that if it's presented more in a true crime um, kind of film or or documentary or something like that. I I don't know. I just didn't know how he was going to handle like this real life, you know, mass murder, I guess it it was because they and, you know, in real life, the Manson family killed like like um, five people that night, I believe, unless I'm miscounting. So, yeah, I mean, it was. Crazy, and I mean, I've seen the movie Helter Skelter. You know what I'm talking about, Amanda? Sure. The made-for-TV movie. Yeah. Um, excellent movie, by the way. Yes. Um, but I've I've seen that movie, but you know, I knew exactly what it was going in, and they um pretty much followed the story as it was. So I mean, you're you're seeing it, you know, kind of um the way it really played out. Um, so with Tarantino, I don't know. I guess I was just kind of unsure, like how he was going to handle it, and. I just know that, you know, sometimes he does, he can get pretty crazy with the, the, you know, violent aspect. And I'm no prude when it comes to violence, believe me, but I just wouldn't have wanted to see like a gratuitously bloody uh, scene with, you know, like this mass murder. You know what I mean? Uh, I wouldn't have wanted to see it like uh, crazily done or something like that. I was a little worried that it might happen that way is all I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. So that's what kind of kept me sort of, I don't know, it kept me definitely on the edge through the whole film. Dan, what did you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah, I I really liked it. I I don't know, I I think it was when I heard it was a Manson family thing that kind of kept me away from because I've seen several Manson family-rated films, including Helter Skelter, and is it Jim Van Bieber, Bebers? Bebers, uh, Manson family. And I thought, I I don't really, it's like, I don't need to see another Jim Jones film. I'm good. Sure. Uh, But maybe if Tarantino does a Jim Jones film, I'm in. (laughs) Um, But, but, pardon me, it was just one of those things where I um I know I think part of it too was that Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are so much better looking than I am that every time I got near the new Beverly where it was playing like every day for a month I got close to the poster and I was like I can't do it they're too I feel I feel ashamed I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk away maybe I need to this is you know they're, they're too good looking so but I was able to watch it here and uh, I watched it twice in the safety of your home yes in the safety of my home <laughs> and um when it started off I knew like um I, I haven't seen the last few Tarantino films, but I knew, um, you know, I knew I'd uh, he, he'd do something to uh, pull me into it, as he does with the Bounty Law stuff at the beginning. And then there'd be 
some moments where I'd have to sort of just hold on tight and things would build and things would happen. And the second time through some of the stuff early on where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm keeping focus, but I'm, I'm looking around my room a bit. They work much better the second time through, which he might have done on purpose. Yeah. I think it's really, really a beautiful film to look at. Uh, I, I live in LA. So a lot of, um, a lot of the locations I recognized, uh, you know, Sharon Tate when she goes to Westwood. I've, I've been in that theater. Um, Casa Vega, when the guys go to Casa Vega, the oh, Mexican yeah. restaurant. I've been in Casa I, I got ca- kind of half thrown out of Casa Vega like 20 years ago, Ooh. you know. Um, uh, and, and so I recognized a lot of the locations and the way they sort of touched them up uh, for the movie and... I just thought it was really nicely done, and and there is a feeling as it's going along that it's sort of uh, you don't quite know where Cliff and Leonardo DiCaprio's character. I'm just going to call him Johnny Outlaw. What's his name? I forgot his character's name. Oh, it's Rick Dalton and uh, Cliff Booth. Rick and Cliff. I couldn't quite tell what, where Rick and Cliff were going at first. That's kind of a it's not a meandering plot line, but it just kind of goes along with two guys doing their thing. But then every once in a while, it, it cuts away to the stuff with, with Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. And you see some members of the, you know, the, the Manson family there and stuff like that. So, so you have this really dark plot line building up alongside this sort of more dramatic one. And they really meet nicely in the end. And so, um, I don't know. I, 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 I quite liked it. I mean, he's, he always writes great dialogue and he always yeah. has these great, these great set pieces. Um, and even scenes that don't seem like set pieces, like there's a scene where, um, uh, Mr. Dalton is talking to a little girl on the set. Yeah. Uh, and there's just one really long take where he's sort of describing a book that he's reading to her. And it's really nicely done. And, you know, and then of course there are scenes recreated for t- TV shows sort of things that are really nicely done to it. It's, I, I think he does a, has a great job with it. O- overall, it's, it's such a lush, rich-looking film, and the script is excellent, and there are surprises, and everyone's so good. And, um, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad you both really liked it. Um, when I saw it, I was pretty blown away by it. I think it's very emotional at the end, and I was really surprised by that, by where he took it. I have to tell you, I haven't seen the last two Quentin Tarantino movies, and I don't know why, because I like everything I've seen. I've seen everything up to Hateful Eight, and then I missed Inglorious Bastards. I don't, maybe that came out before Hateful Eight. I can't remember. And I didn't, or Django either. I didn't see those, but I've seen everything else. And I always really like his stuff, and so I don't know why I didn't see those two films. I had to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just because it looked so vibrant and about LA and and it had you know these two great actors in it and I thought oh this will be really fun I'd like to see it but I was I was really blown away by how much I loved it um so much so that I've seen it three times now which isn't probably a lot of times to see it but I I can't wait to watch it again it's one of those movies that like when it's over I just want to rewind it on my blu-ray if you can rewind a blu-ray and start over again and um and it just kind of haunts me and sticks with me there's just something about it that makes it just really, I don't know, it sits close to my heart. Not as close as Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown will always be my favorite Tarantino film, but but it's really close to it. Which reminds me, Nate, what's your favorite Tarantino movie that you've seen? Oh, that is a tough one. Mm. Honestly, if I'm going with um, rewatchability, it's probably Kill Bill Volume 1. Mm, yeah. I've seen that movie so many times, I could probably quote it from beginning to end. Mm. Wow, I didn't know that. That's a... I learned a little bit about Nate tonight. Um, <laughs> Dan, what's your favorite QT joint? I, I um I will probably go with Jackie Brown also with Pulp Fiction right behind it. I think. Yeah, I would have put Reservoir Dogs mm. behind 
Because it, oh my god, that movie blew me away. I will say one thing about Quentin Tarantino. It's really funny um, to me now. Is that when Reservoir Dogs came out, I saw it in the theater. I went with one girl, a girlfriend of mine. We were the only women in the theater. Um, this this may or may not be a funny story, but she had had her ear ripped off by a dog when she was a little kid, and. The only reason why she went with me was because I was in love with Tim Roth and I didn't have anybody to go with. And the only reason why I saw Reservoir Dogs was because I was in love with Tim Roth. I had no idea what I was walking into. And so, you know, that scene where that guy gets his ear cut off, Mm -hmm. she started hyperventilating in the theater and, and she said, you know, he would have passed out by now. I know. And I thought she was going to pass out Mm -hmm. and I felt so guilty because she was really getting upset. And then when the movie was over, I turned to her to like apologize. And she's like, that was really good. (laughs) And so I was was really happy about that. But then the movie came out and a lot of my friends would go to see it. And Quentin Tarantino was getting some notoriety and all my, all my friends in Vegas, I was living in Vegas at the time. They would, they would say, you really need to be dating this filmmaker named Quentin Tarantino. He just talks about all these movies. They're the same movies that you love. You know what I mean? Like at the time, we didn't know anybody else like that. You Uh know what I mean? And so, um, but we never dated. So that wasn't to be, that's too bad. But we went our own different ways. But I still love that. And then Pulp Fiction came out, you know, and of course I fell in love with him. But like, um, he's consistently, I think, a solid filmmaker. Um, um, The thing about this movie, though, that I love so much was what it was really saying about TV. And so... As um, Dan mentioned, um, it opens with um, a fictional Western called Bounty Law, which um, stars Rick Dalton as Jake Cahill. So Rick Dalton, again, is Quentin Tarantino. And there's a lot of meta elements happening in the film. So what I mean by that is that there's a lot of fictional like Bounty Law mixed with real things, right? Like real TV shows like Lancer, which they have a big segment about um, about halfway into the film. Um, And just to kind of underline what we're talking about. And I'll get into this a little later at the end of my notes, but this is this is about how there were really only three channels in the 60s and the audiences were really large. And as the film progresses, we come to find that everybody sort of recognizes Rick Dalton, everybody. Right. And that's a kind of really important thing to remember. Um, And that he was also this huge figure on the cultural landscape. And we're talking about a guy who kind of thought he was at the end of his rope. Right. Mm -hmm. What I mean is like at the very beginning of the film, he um, after the Bounty Law segment, he's at a bar, right? And Al Pacino, who plays Schwarz, am I saying that right? Because um, uh, Dalton gets his, yeah, yeah, yeah. Schwarz, Schwarz gets his name gets his name wrong. He's this producer who wants to lure um, Dalton to Italy to go make these sort of Italian westerns, spaghetti westerns, and also like crime movies or whatever he can get him to do. So uh, you've been doing. Uh... Guest shots on uh, episodic TV shows the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm doing a, a pilot for CBS right now. It's, uh, it's called it's called Lancer. I play the heavy. Did a <clears throat> Ron Ely Tarzan. I did a Land of the Giants, Green Hornet. It's, I, I did that show uh, uh, Bingo Martin with that kid Scott Brown. Yeah. And and, and I got an FBI that, that, that airs this Sunday. You um, you you always play the bad guy on these shows. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So and they they have a fight scene at the end. Of them? Well, not not uh, not not Land of the Giants or, or FBI, but the the rest, yeah, yeah. And you lose in the fight? <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. I'm I'm, I'm the heavy. <laughs> oh, that's an old trick, pulled by the networks. Now you take Bingo Martin, for example. Uh huh. So you got a new guy like Scott Brown. You want to build up his bona fides, right? So you hire a guy from a canceled show to play the heavy. <laughs> then at the end of the show, when they fight, 
It's hero besting heavy. But what the audience sees is Bingo Martin whipping Jake Cahill's ass. You see? Then next week, it's Ron Eli. Next week, it's Bob Conrad wearing his tight pants, kicking your ass. Yeah. And he has faith in Dalton. The thing is, I think Dalton is the only person that doesn't necessarily have faith in Dalton. As we see as the film progresses, all the people who deal with him in the filmmaking world, I think, really trust him as an actor. But I think he feels like he's at the end of his rope. And Schwartz kind of doesn't help with some of the things he says to sort of um, get Dalton on his side. But one of the most important things about this scene, before we even get to that whole conversation about what it's like to be pigeonholed in a role on television, is that Schwartz talks about a couple of... um, different ways that he's watched Dalton's work. So one night he has, I think he has a home theater. I can't remember, or he watches it at a studio. He gets two of Dalton's theatrical films and he watched them. And he's very clearly saying he watched them on 35 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Then the next day he watches episodes of Bounty Law on 16 millimeter. And I think that that's where we're starting to see that Tarantino is talking about TV as film, right? Not just, I don't know how we think of TV, but you very seldom hear people call it film, right? So I think that he's already laying that out. And what's really interesting is he's showing a credit to one of the theatrical films. And I can't remember if it's supposed to be a real movie or not, but he, there's credits rolling. And the credit you see is an actor named Clint Ritchie. And Clint Ritchie did a lot of B-movies in the 60s and 70s, but he's actually most famous for playing Clint Buchanan on One Life to Live. Mm -hmm. And I think he's actually more predominantly known as a television actor, right? So I think that's kind of a nod to where this is going. And and so, I mean, TV is everywhere throughout this whole film, right? So where Squeaky watches it right at the Spawn Ranch. And, and there's actually a scene where Cliff is talking to George Spawn, played by Bruce Stern, and he says that Squeaky gets upset when he falls asleep during TV time. TV time is very important to them, and they're actually just watching TV when Cliff first shows up mm-hmm. at Spawn Ranch, you know. They're just laying around watching it, and there's actually two TVs in that room. I don't know if you guys noticed that, mm-hmm. but there's a big TV that doesn't work, and there's a little TV on top of it. And which I thought was really interesting that you kind of have to have a TV in your home that works. You just have to. That's how you operated in the late 60s. And then we see Cliff is watching TV in his trailer home, right? I think, I can't remember if he's watching Mannix or not. And yes. he also has yes, a, he is. yes. And he has a poster of Anne Francis mm-hmm. uh, hanging up on his wall, which makes me think of Honey West, Honey of course, West. right? Yeah. 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 And, um, and when Cliff has a flashback to, um, working on a film set with Bruce Lee, it's actually a TV film set, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're on a Green Hornet yes. and yeah. they have kind of a showdown, which has a lot of, there's a lot of critique about that scene in particular. I don't know if we'll talk about it or not, but um, when Sharon uh, goes to Westwood, as Dan noted, she passes a bus bench that is advertising the TV series, The Invaders, mm-hmm. which is playing on KCOP, which I think is a real channel. Um, there are TV guide recreations throughout the film. Um, when Dalton, and I'm sorry, when Cliff has that flashback about being on the Green Hornet set, he's actually fixing Dalton's antenna to his TV. Everyone in the movie is watching Dalton's episode of FBI. So we see Schwartz watching it. We know Squeaky and uh, George Spawn are going to watch it because they had said so. And then Cliff is actually watching it with Rick. I get ready for my big FBI moment. They're all dead, babe. Good. <laughs> Michael Murtaugh. Michael Murtaugh. Bongiorno, Sergio. Turn on Channel 7. 
ABC, FBI. I'm watching your Nebraska gym as we speak. William Reynolds. With guest stars, James Ferentino, Rick Dalton. Like the chewing gum. Norman Fell. Strong. Tonight's episode, All the Streets are Silent. Except when Rick Dalton's got a fucking shotgun, I'll tell you that. Goddamn right. An interesting note about that episode that they're watching is it's called All the Streets Run Silent, which is a real episode. And the character that Dalton played is named Michael Murtaugh, which say, which uh, Cliff Booth goes out of his way to say a couple times. He keeps saying Murtaugh. And in the original episode, that character was played by Burt Reynolds. And mm. I don't know if you guys know this, but Quentin Tarantino had actually originally hired um, Burt Reynolds to play George Spawn, but he died before production. Oh, wow. I didn't yes. know that. Yeah. yeah, so like there's all these ins and outs. And so just with TV being pervasive in the film, that's something that I noticed heavily just in sort of the background. Did you guys notice anything else, Dan? Did you see anything of interest to you? One of the things I, I like too when you, when you bring up sort of sort of go, the golden age of TV is that when this takes place in 1969, the number one show on television was Rowan and Martin's Laughing. And as Ooh. much as we, as much as we all love Laughing, Laughing unlike you know, I think the year before that it was Andy Griffith. Then it was like three years of Bonanza. Then a couple of years of Beverly Hillbillies. Those were the number one shows. Those are all shot on film and edited on film, put together That's on right. that. But but you know, Rowan and Martin is a big old you know variety type show shot on cheap video that looks pretty ugly, which is a precursor to what would happen in most of the first half of the seventies. We're all in the family is the number one right. show, and we go from seeing like a, a decade before that it was Gunsmoke and Wagon Train. And then it becomes stuff like this kind of completely, I would say, unfilmic. Although, if you consider shot on video horror films from the 80s to be filmic, and maybe you do. Um, I do. Th- th- I do. Um, uh, you-, you might consider All in the Family to be in there. But there, there, it, it is it is interesting. Obviously, he, he chose the spot, uh, the year, obviously, because of, of, of Sharon Tate and the Manson family. But it, it is kind of a, a, a turning point in that they're, they're still making Gunsmoke and they're still making Bonanza and the Virginian and hell, Beverly Hillbillies. Um, they're still making all these shot on film shows. But um, we're about to sort of transition into a different era where television isn't quite as um, television will will suddenly become a lot of this was filmed before a live studio audience kind of thing. So there's less of there's less of this um, uh, sort of epic feel that a lot of the shows could hit in the the 50s and 60s. So it's right on the verge of that. And there's the hullabaloo scene, too. Oh, yes. Where you see Rick, you know, he's in his films and he's in Bounty Law and it's all these big epic sort of things. And then you see him dancing, singing a song about behind the green door. I didn't, right. look, I didn't look up to see exactly, you know, if that was referencing what I think it's referencing. But um, I, I didn't I didn't know that was a song. But but it's 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 kind of there was actually a, I, I got a huge list here, but I'll, I'll stop right there. And maybe mention a few more later. Well, something I want to bring up again later is what you said, which was fascinating, and I didn't even think to look that deeply into it. So thank you about the number one TV show being something that was shot on video, because I have something that's kind of a sidebar that I might talk about at the end, and I think we can tie it in to Mm -hmm. this transitional period here, Um, maybe. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the whole blue stuff's really great. One of the things I love about that, those opening scenes, is that I think we get the idea that maybe Dalton is just kind of a Johnny OneNote, for a while until we actually see him on Lancer and then we kind of realize what he actually is which is a terrific talent that's sort of been stuck in 
what he thinks is one role, but I think a lot of people obviously love him. He's got kind of this international sort of thing that where everybody sort of actually really enjoys his work, but I don't think he appreciates that. And he even says at the beginning too, that um, he, he regrets uh, Bounty Law being canceled because I guess the last couple of seasons he started to itch for a film career and then he pushed for it. And I think he's the reason why the show even got canceled. He, he kind of insinuates that the ratings were fine, but he, he was behind it going off the air and he regretted it. And we'll talk a little bit about that maybe at the end too, when he talks about going to pilot season, but um, Nate, any of that stuff strike a chord with you or did you see anything else? Um, I mean, I'm not good at, at that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, you just go I liked the bottle of Aquanet that I saw in the background <laughs> in Dalton's dressing room. Um, and I liked the TV guide I saw in uh, Booth's uh, trailer. Like, yeah, there's a cool. scene where we saw a TV guide. See, I, I, I liked looking at because I know that Tarantino is really good about, like, you know, as far as setting the time frame. Um, he's really good about making it look like things that were really from that time. So I liked looking at all that kind of stuff. Um, so, so I did, but I never watched any of the Western shows, so I couldn't have drawn any parallels as far as like to Bonanza or, um, that's the only Western show I know. <laughs> you know what? I don't really watch Western shows either. They're they're kind of foreign to me. I do. I did watch Laredo, and I think there is a Laredo oh, reference in the movie somewhere. Yeah, Laredo's for Laredo's. I believe is a spinoff from the Virginian, which is which mm-hmm. they mention in there too. And I'd like to. I would like later to talk about the Virginian just for a minute. But oh, yeah. uh, um, oh yeah. which reminds me, Clue Gulliger is in this, right? He was on the Virginian. Oh, yes, wasn't he, he was. He was on the Virginian. He played the sheriff on the Virginian for like two or three seasons. He's very good. Okay. Anyway. I forgot that. Yeah, and then uh, and then he gets attacked by the Living Dead in the end. Of course he does. Yeah, wasn't that July sixth or something? Or July? <laughs> yes. What day was that? Because was it a July, around July fourth? It was I something forget. like that. Because all the the mm. card for that movie that that card of the date in Return Living Dead was getting passed around recently on social oh, media oh. Oh. Um, oh. because of that. Oh, may uh, I bring up one more thing? I just remembered too. The yes, great, please. The, the great Mad Magazine cover that Rick yes. is on, because yes, that, yes. The, one of the things I was trying to figure out is exactly when, the, uh, what years the show ran, and I know he he tries out for the Great Escape, and which is sixty yes. three, I think, and which is probably I, I could be wrong, but I want to say it's sixty three, it's sixty two, and I know that when you see a title card for the show, it's fifty eight. And then when they're interviewed at the beginning of the movie, it's 61 because the guy mentions Dick Van Dyke, which began in autumn of 61. And the Mad Magazine is dated September 61, which means it would have come out in early summer of 61. So at least like 58 to 61, like three seasons, four. I feel like it's a four or five season show, but I don't I don't I'm just making that up. No, it felt like it had run for a while. It made, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know enough about the Rifleman, but for some reason it made me feel like I was watching the mm-hmm. Rifleman in mm-hmm. a way, and that ran for a little while. Not a huge chunk, but a pretty decent yeah. run. Yeah, right? I thought of uh, uh, Wyatt Earp with Hugh O'Brien. That's right. Which was on for like six seasons or so. In the, in the, of course, he's not a bounty hunter. He's a, you know, he's a lawman. But I sort of saw that that same sort of thing where if you look up Hugh O'Brien's sort of career, he did other stuff. But you know, you'll, the first thing you'll see is he was wide up for like six years in yeah. the 50s. Yeah, yeah, there was, a, there was definitely, I think that was the right kind of genre to pick for in terms mm-hmm. of like showing kind of Rick 
feeling like he's sort of in this corner in his career. And um, and so I just want to talk a little bit. I guess we'll talk about Lancer. And mm-hmm. I don't know where I'll introduce this, but I have to talk about James Stacy a little. And I don't know if you guys know anything about James Stacy. Um, but he was a very controversial character later in life. And I really like the way he's portrayed here. And there's a moment in the film that actually like makes me so misty that I can't stand it. So, so what he does Tarantino in the Lancer stuff is he actually incorporates real well-known television actors playing people involved in television, right? So he's got Luke Perry, who's playing Wayne uh, Maunder, who I don't know the name of his character, but that was the star of Lancer, right? Luke Perry plays him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I have to tell you, the first time I saw this, when he came on screen, I thought I was just going to burst out in tears. It was so great to see him, and he's wonderful, and I wish he'd done more in the film. But it was I'm, I have to think that Luke Perry was must have been so thrilled to be in a Quentin Tarantino movie, and he should have been because he's a wonderful actor. It was so great to see him. It's always a little hard for me to see him right now. And then, of course, Nicholas Hammond, who we probably best yeah. know as Spider-Man from the 1970s. Forget that whole Sound of Music stuff. He's <laughs> Spider-Man from the 1970s TV series, right? He plays Sam Wanamaker, and Wanamaker did actually direct the pilot to Lancer. Um, he did a lot of stuff. He did Red Heat with Arnold Schwarzenegger, I just read. He had a pretty diverse filmmaking career, and he was an actor. Um, but he worked with James Stacy a couple times. So Stacy was the other star of Lancer, and he played Johnny Madrid. And um, he's pretty prominent in this scene. I don't know the name of the actor who plays him. Um, he doesn't really look like James Stacy, but he's very good in the part. So Wanamaker and Stacy did Lancer, this one episode together. And then in 1980, they did a TV movie that I've been looking for for years called My Kidnapper, My Love which Wanamaker directed and James Stacy starred in. So just a little precursor, um, not necessarily precursor, but just a little background if you're not familiar with James Stacy, and and we may talk about him a little later. The reason why I think it's kind of important that he's in this film and maybe a little controversial is that James Stacy, a couple years after Lancer went off the air, he was an avid motorcycle rider, which we see in one scene in the film, and that's the scene that rips my heart out. He was on a motorcycle with his girlfriend one night and he was hit by a truck. The accident was not his fault. His girlfriend was killed and he lost his arm and his leg. He had a really hard time after that kind of finding work as an actor. And so he may work for himself in certain things. He did end up doing a lot of TV movies, none of which I've seen and which I'm going to seek out. I think I want to do a whole James Stacy retrospective. Well, he did do Paperman before his accident, but um, which is a great TV movie. But um, he was in Double Exposure. Do you guys have you guys seen that movie? You know the movie about the guy that's like the cheesecake photographer, and he and he oh, keeps yes. blacking out, and he's thinking that he's murdering women. He James Stacy plays his brother. Okay. You know the amputee race car driver, and so he was able to get work, but it was it was pretty difficult and so as the years wore on um i think life wore on james stacy i don't know how to put this without because i don't i don't condone any of what i'm going to say but at the same time i have a lot of sympathy for him um so he would end up in the 90s molesting an 11 year old girl and um and he got arrested and i think he served time and then (laughs) so upsetting to me then one day a few years later, he tried to kill himself, and he tried to jump off a cliff, I think, and something happened, and he lived. And he, his wife, his ex-wife, was Kim Darby. He'd actually been married to Connie Stevens for a while, and then he married Kim Darby from Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, and, and they had divorced, you know, before all this happened. But she took him in, I think, and I believe he lived with her in his last years, or maybe his daughter that they had together. And he had a really, really dark kind of life, a life that started a certain way and then ended in a way that I don't think anybody was expecting. And so that scene when they're at the end of Lancer for the day and they're 
closing down the set, you see the James Stacy character get on his motorcycle and he kind of takes a breath of air and he puts on his helmet and he goes. And if you don't know anything about James Stacy, that scene probably has no meaning to you. But as a, a fan of his, that scene just rips my heart out. And and when, when we get to the end, I do want to talk about some of the tragedy that, that a lot of these real life people that are in the film had. Um, and a lot of them were TV related. And so there's some interesting threads there. But anyway, so Lancer was a real series. But what I liked about what they did about this scene is that they really hyper stylized it. Right. They, they make yeah. it with all the angles that they shot it at mm-hmm. and the cinematography and the acting. It's like it's very deep and heavy and it's beautifully shot and it's like it's like a real piece of cinema and i really appreciated that because i think that's what tarantino is trying to say but also one of the things that he does that i love and you see this all the time just in regular films and television is when they're like when you see a movie or a tv show and they have a scene where they're making a movie or a tv show they do everything in one take Yes. You know what I mean? Where when there's like mm-hmm. three dozen different camera shots, Cut. they act yeah, like yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they act like there's like just thirty five cameras on set and uh-huh. they somehow and the actors just go through like it's a play. And then they just cut all the 35 pieces together with all the different shots. And and they did that here, and it's hilarious, and it, it really works for me. But um, let me ask you guys what you thought about the Lancer stuff. So just in terms of, like, um, what you thought maybe it was saying about television or what you thought just about the scenes in and of themselves. I'll start with Nate here. Nate, what did you think about the Lancer segment? I didn't read a lot into it. <laughs> That's okay. Just tell me what you thought of it. I liked it. Um, I particularly liked all of um, the conversations between uh, Dalton and the the girl. Yeah. um, Who also plays Anna Cat on uh, American Housewife. She's really good on that show, too. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's really good in the movie, honestly. I liked all their scenes together. I love the part where, uh, you know, of course, in the acting in the scene, you know, he's being rough with her and he shoves her to the ground and later he's, you know, he's making sure are you okay are you okay and she's like oh yeah she's like i throw myself down all the time just for fun <laughs> i have pads on yeah i love when he calls her pumpkin pie or whatever that is and she's trying really hard not to get angry at him because he's really upset and she's like my <laughs> name is whatever her name is and it's not pumpkin pie but since you're upset pumpkin i'll let pie. it go and it's, it's really sweet yeah it's this really sweet scene i always wondered if she was maybe inspired by Quinn Cummings, I don't know if you guys are familiar with her, but she was in, I think, The Goodbye Girl in the 70s. Yeah, she was family, a child actor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she was on Family. And she was in, um, I think she's in one of the TV movies we may have watched, um, but I can't remember. And, um, and she, she was yeah. she was kind of a child genius. Mm-hmm. And if you ever read interviews with her, she's like well-developed past her eight-year-old body, you know, intellectually. And when I say well-developed, that sounded horrible. She's well developed, guys. She's, <laughs> I mean, she's she's was like this. She was like a little adult, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And in the interviews with her, like, are are amazing. If you ever go back through archives and look her up, um, and I, so I don't know if she was partially the inspiration for any of that. But uh, Dan, did you have any thoughts about the Lancer stuff? Uh, oh, I uh, I quite like I I did I was going to mention what you said about the the scenes they shoot in it where they um. Uh, they're very stylized, and they do have like you know uh, ten, fifteen cuts within the scene, and then they do the okay cut. Um, and, but but then you realize like like the first time he's doing it, I watch it and I thought, okay, is he doing that thing where we're pretending to shoot a scene and then we're gonna yell, oh yes, he's doing that okay with twenty different cuts. But then he does that several more times. You realize he's having fun with it. He 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 doesn't care that you're, you're that I just did, said that. Um, 
and I do like the um, I do like his discussions with little girl. I love when he's discussing his um, the book he's reading and he describes it. You know, yeah. the, the Buck and Bronco guy who's hurt his spine and he's having a really rough life. And she says, "How far are you through it?" And he says, "About halfway." And I thought, "Oh, I get it, Mister Tarantino. I get what you're doing there." I thought it was lovely. And yeah, that scene between the two of them I really like. And he's you, you do get to see Rick. The, the thing is, the first time you see Rick um, act, he's, he's forgetting his lines. He's just forgetting yeah. his lines over and over. But then when he really needs to pull through and do it, he's very, he's very, he's very good. And he 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 just he really pulls it off. And when the director comes over, you know, and and, and you know, Rick's like, do you want to do another take? No. Nope. That was it. We got it. And um, you know, of course, we had twelve cameras going. No, I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> but um, and uh, yeah, I I thought those were great scenes. And and the the weird thing is that when I was maybe it's not that weird. Uh, when I was sitting there watching it, and I, I realized that it was I I heard Lancer, and I was watching the whole time. I thought Lancer, where do I know that? Where do I know that? And I realized that um uh you know because lancer ran for two seasons and the other star of lancer is andrew duggan and andrew duggan was one of the two stars of bourbon street beat which myself and mitchell hadley just spent like a year talking about on eventually super train and and so i i'm a big fan of his he plays a character called um uh, cal calhoun he's a new orleans detective and so i i when we somewhere in there when Mitchell and I were discussing Burbage Street Beat, I think he brought up Lancer and I kind of was half looking to watch it. And then it wasn't until afterwards where I was like, where do I know that? Oh, it's yeah. that show. I almost started <laughs> watching that show like a year ago, but I'm, I'm tempted. I'm very tempted now. But yeah, I thought they were, they were, they were great scenes and it looks, it looks so, I, I love how, yeah, it is very much like it's 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 late '60s TV. It's shooting a pilot, but whenever the scenes, the actual scenes are on, he goes full like Tarantino on us, sort of with the yeah, way he, he shoots it and he the stuff. So, so so it's kind of this nice mix of like he's really sort of giving it incredible respect because obviously they would have shot shot it much much quicker than that and and did it much yeah. faster and probably much cheaper. So the sort of the respect he's giving it is really lovely. It's really nice. I think I think too. I liked with the stuff that you were saying about Dalton. Like he's going through, and then he kind of messes up his lines, and he takes it so seriously when um, he has his little lunch break, and he's throwing his "I can't drink," and you're a washed up, whatever, and and like he's he's a really good actor. Like, and I think you can kind of see the process there, like that he wants to be the best when he's doing it, and he's he's actually like not just some guy who was good looking who ended up on a western. He's actually like an actor. You know, and I think maybe when you're talking about this, it made me think looking at Sam Wanamaker's uh, filmography today very briefly. I was thinking he was an interesting person to pick. And I wonder if Lancer was specifically picked because Wanamaker did direct the pilot and Wanamaker is known for having a pretty diverse and interesting career mm-hmm. and and also being an actor. So he understood actors. Right. Rachel. <laughs> Sam Wanamaker. Hey, Sam, sorry about the wet hand. Oh, don't worry about it. I'm used to it with you. I just want you to know I'm the one who cast you, and I could not be more delighted that you're doing this. Oh, well, thank you, Sam. I, I appreciate it. That's a good part. Yeah, it is. Have you met Jim Stacy, the series lead? Uh, not yet. No, no. Well, you guys are going to be dynamite together. Mm, mm. Well, it's sounds like exciting. Yeah, lightning in a bottle. <laughs> now, you met 
Sonia, makeup and hair. Hi. And this is Rebecca, Hello. who does costumes. Hi. Howdy. Now, I want a whole new look for Caleb. I don't want this Western costume the way they costume the Big Valley and Bonanza for the last decade. I want a zeitgeist flair to the costumes. I mean, nothing anachronistic, but where does 1869 and 1969 meet? Especially when it comes to you, Caleb. Mm, mm. First off, I want to give him a mustache. A big, droopy, Zabata-like mustache. Uh, now, about his jacket, I want to give him a hippie jacket. Something he could wear into the London fog tonight and look like the hippest guy in the room. Far out. We got a custard jacket, mm -hmm. fringes all down the arm. It's tan now, but I dyed dark brown. He could hit the strip in it tonight. <coughs> That's my girl. <laughs> now, Rick, about your hair. Oh, what about my hair? I want to go with a different hairstyle. Huh. What? Something more hippie-ish. You, well, you, 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 you want him to look like a hippie? <laughs> well, think less hippie, more <coughs> hell's angel. Rum, rum. Say, uh, Get uh, Sam, Sam, uh, <coughs> if you got me covered up in all this, uh, <coughs> this junk, uh, how's the audience gonna know it's me? I hope they don't. Mm. I don't want them to see Jake Cahill. I want them to see Caleb. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. <laughs> Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. One of the things that he does that I love, Nicholas Hammond playing Sam Wanamaker, is he's telling um, the wardrobe assistant how he wants Dalton to look for the part. And it doesn't look anything like J.K. Hill from Bounty Law. And um, and he's kind of upset about it, um, Dalton is, because he's so used to everybody sort of playing up that he's J.K. Hill. And he's like, no, 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 I don't want you to look like J.K. Hill. This is your acting. This is, you know what I mean? I just want you mm -hmm. the acting to come through. And... Um, I love that. There's so much respect for, like, we're making this TV show, but it's going to be something great, right? Mm -hmm. And and we're all here to make it great. And so I really appreciated that. And I think you're right. I think that Quentin Tarantino, he Tarantinos it, but I think that also at the same time he's maybe saying something about, I think a lot of filmmakers on television get kind of downgraded for working on TV, yes. and that's not fair. And I think he's kind of taking the time to tell us maybe we should be thinking differently about them. Um, and a lot of filmmakers who started on TV do go on to make pretty big films, like uh, John Badham, Steven Spielberg, right? Sure, they, yeah. they cut their teeth, and everybody knows that Steven Spielberg's television is outstanding, right? So why wouldn't somebody else's? You know, he didn't know he was going to become a famous film director when he was doing it. So he was just doing what was in his heart to do. He was trying to bring art to the to the medium, right? Mm. So that's what makes those scenes to me so important. And also, as I mentioned earlier, everybody recognizes Rick Dalton, right? Mm. So like, there's a scene at the end where the Manson family shows up at Cielo Drive and they go to the wrong house and Dalton comes out and he's like, get off my fucking lawn, you know, <laughs> and he shoes him down the road and they're sitting in their car at the bottom of Cielo Drive and, and Squeaky is like, dude, hold it. Was that Rick Dalton? Who? The guy from Bounty Law. Who, Jake Cahill? Yeah, the guy in the road was Jake Cahill. Oh, oh, wait a minute. That was fucking Jake Cahill that just yelled at me? He was older. Yeah, I think so. But who's this Rick guy? Jesus Christ, Sadie, get it together. Rick Dalton played Jake Cahill in a cowboy show in the 50s called Bounty Law. Fuck you, Katie. Sorry I don't know the name of every fascist on TV in the 50s. I can't believe that asshole in the robe was J.K. Hill. 
When I was a kid, I had a Bounty Law lunchbox. That was my favorite of all my lunchboxes. And also, at the, also Sharon Tate recognizes him, too. And so there's this whole idea that, like, everybody, because television was so prevalent and because everybody watched the same programs, people like Rick Dalton were well-loved by everybody from really beautiful, wonderful people like Sharon Tate to, like, horrible, awful murderers like the Manson <laughs> family, right? Like, the spectrum yeah. of of respect and love for him is actually really far and wide. And I thought that that was really interesting. Yeah. I, um, geez, I don't, I don't, I, th- I think you covered more or less what I was going to say. I was, I was trying to, I thought I had something more profound to say, but I think, I think that that is one of the great things uh, about it. I mean, not just like, like there's, he, he sort of plays up like the, the Tarantino plays up like the paparazzi when he goes to, when, when, when uh, Mr. Dalton there goes to Italy and you see all the paparazzos yeah. or whatever are all over the place. And then there's the, the opening, um, uh, with Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski where they're walking down an airport hallway and there are like 40 paparazzi in front of them. And there, there is the, the feeling, like you said, that, um, that, that just this thing that went, because there were only three networks, we were very closely, very closely knit in, in our sort of pop culture uh, sharing, yeah. as it were, on television. I mean, I mean, there was a thing like, what was it? Um, you know, in the in the late 1963, I, and I, I I'd like to bring this up whenever I can. Um, several of the top-rated episodes of television show of all time were the like four or five episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies that aired after uh, Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, the ratings those things got, you, uh, they are they're like Super Bowl or better ratings that those episodes of television got and that was the freaking beverly hillbillies so you can imagine where rick is on this because he's yeah. a hero although everyone loved jethro um you know that this you also brought up another interesting thing. i didn't even make the connection so yeah at the beginning we see polanski and tate right sharon tate going off the plane and there's all those people and then later at the end of the film we see dalton and his girlfriend or his now wife coming off the plane but i don't think they have the same reception they're just kind of getting off the plane right yeah yeah Yeah, and that's interesting and there's something else i noticed this time watching it and i don't know what it means and it really isn't tv related but it struck me (laughs) is that when he's remembering is it great escape that they were like weren't you supposed to be in that and he's remembering the scene that he would have done that steve mcqueen had done and if you'll notice he's walking away right at the end of the scene he walks away as they're sending him off to be in solitude or whatever they were doing with him and then this then it cuts and then we see Sharon Tate walking to the movie theater to see the movie that she's in, right? And so what we're seeing is, to me, we're seeing Rick Dalton walking away from this potential film career because it didn't work out for him. And then we see Sharon Tate walking to the film career that she was having, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just so beautifully done in the film. So I didn't yeah. even put the paparazzi and the, them getting off the plane as two scenes that belong together. But, um, yeah. And if you, if you remember, too, that uh, Sharon Tate, some of her earliest performances – we're on the Beverly Hillbillies. She played one of the secretaries in Mr. Drysdale's oh, right. Bank. And they had her wear like a black wig. She looked kind of funny. I bet she did, I yeah. I don't think she so. falls she's for Jethro, I believe. Yeah. Not much of a brunette there, is she? But um, I love those scenes, too, where she's watching herself in the theater. It's just really oh, those sweet. are great, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so some other stuff. I mean, that's the main TV stuff. But some of the other stuff I think is really interesting that I think Tarantino's kind of hinting at is that when also we see the Manson family in the car talking about what they're going to do. They're talking – one of them talks about how uh, TV is so violent and that they're going to go ahead and kill people and then they're going to blame it on – 
um, violence on television. And that predates a couple of really interesting things that happened in the 70s um, that sort of ruined the way television looked and the kind of stuff that they would put on TV. So, of course, we've talked about it in our Born Innocent episode, but, you know, there was a very famous recreation of that rape scene that happened just after the film originally aired. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it created the family viewing hour, right, on the networks. And um, and so you couldn't show TV movies after a certain hour or before a certain hour, I'm sorry. So, like, the 79 slot was taken. You can't show questionable TV movies in that time slot. But then there was also, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Ronnie Zamora, but Ronnie Zamora killed, I think, an elderly woman, maybe a couple. And um, he said he did it because he was influenced by all the violence he saw on TV. And one of the shows he pointed out was Kojak. Hmm. And uh, after that, and Born Innocent, there were all kinds of studies that came out about how kids um, consume violence on television and whether or not it would make them violent in real life. I think that he's kind of hinting at where TV is going to have to take. So you mentioned it earlier about Life Laughing is sort of the transition from all these shows being shot on film to like this sort of really much more, I don't want to say ugly, but like, you know, uh, not as pretty for sure, yeah. um, kind of style of filmmaking um, than perhaps this kind of idea that people are um, being affected by violence um, and it's being noted in the 1970s that that's also a transition of how we moved away from a lot of those kinds of shows that we saw in the 70s, like Streets of San Francisco, like the gritty shows, right? Like Kojak. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that there's some commentary on that too. And there's, there's also um, the, the thing I thought of when it came to um, uh, like the family hour and stuff like that was I thought of uh, 70s, like Saturday morning cartoons where they mm-hmm. like, you, you know, where they like when when the 70s began, it was like um, parents just went crazy over kids spending all morning watching these violent cartoons from, you know, Looney Tunes onwards and upwards. And and I, if I remember correctly, it was in the 70s where um, like shows were like a show would air from like and I could I could be in this later on, but it, they would air from like eight to eight twenty five. And then the last five minutes of every half hour an hour would be like kids news or um you know like uh arts and crafts or here's some kids why not you know after watching you know sabrina and the groovy ghoulies why not go to a museum you know after the super friends why not go for a walk you know and you would get this thing like in the 70s where oh wait are you thinking of are you thinking of lolly 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 get your adverbs here that that was another thing, yeah. Like they 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 yeah. they were made to bring educational stuff to Saturday mornings, and and you had stuff like, uh, what is it? The big thing with like the Super Friends, and then He Man in the eighties was that they were never really allowed to, after a certain time, like punch anybody. So you had all these things with these superheroes in them, and they couldn't be violent. They weren't allowed to be violent, and so that's kind of, and they were certainly violent in the sixties. And so that was a thing, like, as the 70s yeah. began, that, that was another area where, like, they cracked down on the violence. Yeah. Well, think about, like, wasn't Johnny Quest from the 60s? Yes. Uh, like and they did some crazy yeah. stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's killed all show. kinds of yeah. people. Yeah. It yeah. was my favorite cartoon. It's so beautifully oh, drawn. It's it's yeah. just amazing. And Race Bannon, let's not even start. <laughs> let's not even start. I was eight, and he was 30, and I was in love. Um, and I've never gotten over it. But um, yeah, that's a, that's also a really interesting thing to bring up. Yeah, so I think that I think so. Let me just talk a little, real briefly about some of the people that are real life people that are in the film, and a, a lot of them had very tragic 
ends or very tragic things happen to them. And and then I want to kind of wind it back to the stuff you said about TV that I think is so fascinating and maybe relevant um, to this conversation. So, of course, there's a scene where they go to the Playboy Mansion, which I love because it's like the most innocent looking party I've ever seen. Like when you think of the Playboy Mansion, you're thinking of like orgies and like naked, heaving bosomed women and things like that. And I kind of feel like in any other film that might be what you've seen. But what you see is a lot of people, men and women, um, dancing a lot of it there's no nudity right there's some people in the grotto but they're just dancing right it's like it's seriously the most innocent (laughs) version of of the playboy mansion i've ever seen and i love it but you'll know in that scene we see steve mcqueen of course who has like a little monologue there about um roman polanski and sharon tate and jc brie that's kind of important to the film and um and then we they show mama Cass, right mama Cass and michelle phillips Mm -hmm. are uh Sharon Tate's friends and they're dancing. There's a lot of Sharon Tate dancing too, which I think is interesting. I think where TV was was really big in everybody's life for me, Sharon was really about music, you know, mm. which I think is an interesting contrast. Um, and then of course we have James Daisy from Lancer, who um, I've talked about briefly. And then we had uh, so at the towards the end of the movie when Sharon Tate is pregnant. Um, she has a friend come over to visit her. Rumor Willis plays her. And that is actually Joanna Pettit, who, by the way, is in double exposure with James Stacy. I just realized. And um, and Joanna Pettit is still with us. She was married to Alex Cord from Goliath Awaits uh, that we talked about a couple episodes ago for a long time. They got divorced, but their son overdosed and died of a drug drug overdose um, in his 20s. And and when I was thinking about all the kind of tragic characters, I, I thought of her later and thought you know what she really had a lot of tragedy too and and i'm not saying that the shift from tv shot on film to video is a tragedy or should be looked at the same way but we're looking at a transitionary state of um the world here where there was still this kind of like these people that we love and still love right are really um at the state in their life where things are really kind of good and innocent and maybe naive in a way uh but this really kind of sweet innocence is still there, despite the fact that we're in the middle of like this huge uprising in subculture in Vietnam. What we're seeing is sort of like the celebration of these people, whether as they're at the beginning of their careers or at the high points of their career, right? And yet, after Sharon Tate's death, there's going to be this transition away from that because we're going to lose a lot of people pretty soon after, right? And things are going to happen to these care these people, these real people. And so. Um, I find I find it really interesting what you say about TV, and I kind of wonder if that's part of where Tarantino was going. I don't know, but I'm so glad you brought that up because now it's got my brain. That <laughs> academic paper's coming. It's, it's going to be intense. I, may, may I mention a mm-hmm. few TV things that I um one and I don't this this uh, one of the things about early TV up until the the like the mid 50s or so was that. Um, uh, most films and TV and had the same aspect ratio. It wasn't until the mid fifties that films went really went widescreen. So I, I don't know. Oh, I brought this up because uh, the green Hornet, one of the directors of the show, the green Hornet who did like three or four episodes was William Bodine. Also known in some places as William one shot Bodine who had been making movies since the twenties. And so there's something, uh, there, there's something just great about this guy who was making, he made films back in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s when films were the aspect ratio of television. Then in the mid 50s, they shot, they came, they became widescreen, and then his career in film more or less stopped in the early 60s. And then he directed TV, 
until he died. Well, until he made Billy the Kid versus Dracula and Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. But um, I, I, I don't really have a point with the aspect ratio thing, but there is something about how TV, when it started, if, if, you, if you were able to gauge this, like the early Westerns, they were the same, they had the same framing. Uh, yeah. They were both square as movies were. So at the very up until like 54, 55, it was kind of the same thing. And then it branched off and they became different sort of things. That's really um, interesting. Um, and then the other one I was just going to mention was, was the Virginian. Because I think one, I think the reason why he, well, I probably picks the Westerns because he loves the Westerns. Um, but the thing with the Westerns was that the, the, the best of them, you know, they always had their own enormous street that you would be on that was like in the middle of nowhere and there was always shots of people riding across the plains so it was much more f- a good western was much more filmic and expansive yeah. than say than say the monsters although the monsters it definitely has its charms oh yeah you know um and but 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 then once in a while like with 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 the westerns you would get like the shows where they would do the big expansive shots and then they'd like get off their horses and step into the next shot and it's clear that they're like like in a studio where like if you picked michael landon up and threw him six feet behind you he hit a backdrop or something like that yeah. <laughs> so so there's kind of a, there's kind of this mix of, of things but the um the virginian as i mentioned is my favorite western and the thing with the virginian is that it started in 62 ran for nine years, and oddly enough, the ninth year it was on, it became rebranded as The Men from Shiloh, and it had a new musical theme by Ennio Morricone, oh, uh, which is which oh, is pretty cool, who just, who sadly just passed, yes. Um, but the thing with um, uh, the uh, Virginia when it was on, uh, which does get mentioned uh, briefly in here, I think um, Brad Pitt's character mentions like a stuntman he knew broken arm on the Virginian, or something like that. Um, but the Virginian was on for nine years. It was in color the whole time, and most shows didn't go to color until the mid '60s. This was '62. Like it and Bonanza were the only big shows that were in color. Um, and but the, the the big thing for me with the Virginian is that it was the only, apart from one season of Wagon Train, 90 minute western. Oh, that's right. Which meant every single episode it was on the Wednesdays from 7:30 to 9. And every single episode without commercials was 75 minutes long, which, you know, is feature length. Yes. And so every episode, and some are structured better than others. I've seen all of them. And the best ones are the ones that are structured like films. In fact, some of the early ones have like the screen, the screen, the credit will be something like written by whoever based on a screenplay by, so some of them were actually based off of. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's interesting. so some of them are more, you know, um, segmented, um, but some of them, some of the best ones are structured like movies because they're 75 minute long and, and watching them, that show is a very different experience from watching like an hour long show because you're in it for like a 90 minute haul. And so I just, I just think if you, you look at a show like that to see, it could be very filmic at times, which was lovely. And um, it's a very good show too. And oh, and the last oh my gosh, one last thing. I'm sorry. Beer commercials. Um, there is a commercial from 19. 19- James Drury played the Virginian, and you never learned his name. And James Drury actually passed earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he, uh, yeah, he played the Virginian through all nine seasons. And I was watching some PBA bowling on YouTube the other day. I know what you're saying. Don't judge. 
Um, and, and, and it was a, from 1976, I believe, and the commercials were in there. And there was a commercial that started off uh, like a Western. And you see a guy hop down from his horse, start walking towards us. And then at the bottom, James Drury, famous cowboy star. I was like, hey, it's James Drury. Now, now the Virginia had been off for five years, and he was kind of doing random things here and there, kind of like Rick. And he walks towards the camera, and he goes to sit down in his chair, and he talks about how tough it could be doing doing westerns every day. And two good-looking guys come by, and they say hi to each other, and they crack open their Miller Lights. I think it's Miller Lights. And they start talking and drinking, and they're talking about how great it is to be cowboys on the western movies. And, you know, and these two guys are all agreeing with them. And then you hear, all right, come on, back on the set. And then the two guys start to get up, and then you hear, stuntmen only. And James Drury starts to laugh, and the two guys give him a look, and they go off on the set to do stuntman stuff while he sits there laughing, drinking his beer. And I thought, of course. I wish I could remember exactly what thing I saw in the commercial, but I thought that was sort of a perfect little, that's not quite what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but, but well, a lot of it is like sending stuntmen to do stuff. And, but that and, like after the credits thing, is it's got that like uh, Rick Dalton doing the ad for the cigarettes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's what it made me think of when you were describing it, like how these actors go and they end up doing these things that are sort of attached to the, what they're famous for, but it's mm-hmm. used to promote something like a, you know, consumer product. And um, and so that's kind of what I was thinking of when you were talking about it. That's kind of all I have on that. Well, real briefly, you did say one other thing, and I'll bring it up here in a second, but um, when I first saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last year, the okay, so Brad Pitt – is amazing to look at in this movie. He's beautiful. I've never seen anything quite like him, but he's also got makeup on and he doesn't quite look like Brad Pitt. He's supposed to look a little, I think, uh, leatherier. Right. And, um, and the makeup is perfect because it's, you can tell it's Brad Pitt, but it doesn't necessarily look just like Brad Pitt. And what I like so much about it though, and I actually put a still up on my Twitter, social media months ago, uh, is he looks quite a bit like James Franciscus to me. And, um, and I I don't know that that was, that was meant intentionally, but, when I think of James Francis, because now, of course, he did Valley of the Guanji and all kinds of stuff. Well, I always think of Valley of the Guanji, though, because it's adorable. But, like, mm-hmm. but like I know him mostly for his TV work. He did a lot of TV movies um, and some other TV was in uh, Ghost Story. It's an episode of that I saw recently. Um, and um, and so I thought that that was, like, kind of a neat thing because even without, I think, necessarily intending it, I was still attaching Cliff Booth to television in a way because he reminded mm-hmm. me so much of James Franciscus. But... But you mentioned earlier that you kind of got a Doug McClure vibe off oh, yes. Dalton, and I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Oh, <laughs> I um, I uh, Doug McClure um, I think I mean his his I think his biggest role was probably playing Trampus, one of the main characters in the Virginian. He oh. he is the he is the only other character who's in all nine seasons. Oh. He's there almost every single episode. Um, and to me, I, when I think of, of Doug McClure, I think of him in, in that. I think of him in the, the great show Search with Tony mm-hmm. Francioso and, um, and Hugh O'Brien. And I think of him in like Cannonball Run 2. No, not really. Um, but he is in that. Uh, I think of him in Ran- uh, Satan's Triangle, of course. And, and he was always one of those actors to me who, um, like he had this big show he was in for nine years. And then a year or so later, he's in this other really great show that only ran for a season. And then he kind of pops up all over the place in random things. And yeah. eventually, eventually he becomes one of the basis, basis, basis for Troy McClure from The Simpsons. And there's a great story where um, 
uh, Doug McClure was watching The Simpsons with his like daughters and Troy Ma- hi I'm Troy McClure host of such show you know and he comes and he's watching Troy McClure and he turned to his daughters and said are they making fun of me <laughs> and they kind of they kind of were but in the sweetest way and that's kind of a bit of the feeling I got with Doug McClure I don't I think Doug McClure is a pretty fine actor the tricky yeah. thing is Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio I think is a better actor so it's yes. a little trickier to sort of parse that out but but that was my sort of thought when I watched it. The, the decade is slightly off but I, I kind of thought of Doug McClure yeah I thought that was interesting. So, you know, Doug McClure has a daughter named Tay McClure, and Tay McClure was sort of Shannon Tweed's replacement in the world of sexy, erotic thrillers of the 90s. So when you say he's talking to his daughters, watching an episode of Simpsons, I'm picturing, like, this really busty blonde <laughs> sitting next to him, you know? And, and and it just made me laugh. That's all. But that Doug, I'm, I'm Doug McClure. Gotta love him. Yeah, he's Whenever. really great. I always think of him in um, that TV show that was on in the 80s called Out of This World. Do you remember that? Where Donna Pascal oh, yes. had had a baby yeah. with an alien from outer space. And so they had this half mm-hmm. alien daughter. And he was yes. the mayor or whatever of the town. And he was friends with um, Donna Pascal's character. So he was always coming over to do things. And I think that was kind of my introduction to him in that mm-hmm. I'd seen him in lots of stuff. But I think that was the first time I'd seen him in something consistently that I kind of got to know his name and who he was, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love yeah. that show, by the way, shamelessly. I have I have no shame about it. <laughs> um, it's good. And everybody should watch it. Would you like to swing on a star? Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> so anyway, I think that's kind of all I have, too. So and I think Nate doesn't have anything else. Do you, Nate? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay if you hadn't said that i would have been really upset um so so i hope everybody enjoyed this kind of mini sode and to let us know if it was something of interest to you because we've picked out some other movies that we think are might be worthwhile to talk about in terms of mm-hmm. how they are sort of reminding us of certain aspects of television or the tv movie in general um and we might do a series of mini so it's just a thought we had um and i'm really happy that Nate and Dan played ball with me here because mm-hmm. it's something I've really been wanting to talk about for a long time mm-hmm. and I'm so glad I got to do it and I hope people listening if you've seen the movie um, you caught a lot of the stuff yourself or if you haven't maybe you see the, the movie in a new light and um, if you have any thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I want to hear them um, and so you can come and reach us at our social media sites. See, I didn't write these down. That's why I keep making the sentences longer and longer while I think of our <laughs> So I think you just go yeah. on Facebook and look for the Made for TV Mayhem show. You go on Twitter and you should go on TV Mayhem podcast. We do have an Instagram now that I don't update as much as I should, and that's just at Made for TV Mayhem. And you can also email us at TV Mayhem podcast at gmail.com. Um, I'll go ahead and let you guys know that I'm hoping to have another trap cast out, but I have new software on my computer because um, I had to get a new computer and it, it it won't take my old, the what I used to use to edit stuff together. So Dan's editing this. Thank you so much. And um, and I don't know what I'm going to oh, do sure. about the trap cast. I'm slowly trying to figure out how to use GarageBand. Um, it's not working so well in my favor. But <laughs> um, So we're hoping to get this out to you soon, and then we will get – uh, hopefully that trap cast. And then we do have an episode planned. I've been having, I've been wavering on what two movies to pick, but it's going to be about a particular filmmaker. 
Um, and, um, and we will have a guest. So I'm hoping to do that in the next month or so. So please hang on. Thank you so much, everybody, for sticking with us and listening. I know we haven't been as consistent as we should be. Um, but we really appreciate all the feedback that we get and all the people who just pop in to listen and all the people who retweet or share our shows. And that's it. So we'll all, we'll all just say good night here. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Good night. Mm-hmm.